The Lord be with you. Of the many characters that we meet in the Gospels, I would say that it is well worth our time to devote some consideration to the Roman governor and overseer of the province of Judea, Pontius Pilate, the man from our reading today. I say this partly because the way we talk about that infamous Roman governor who washed his hands of Jesus' death, the way we talk about that guy, it matters. The way we talk about Pilate, the way we see him in the story can maybe tell us something about how we locate ourselves in the gospel story. Let's start with the Apostles' Creed, the early, maybe one of the earliest distillations of Christian faith. It's one that we so often recite together as preparation for the Lord's Supper. In that recitation, we are reminded that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. Pilate's inclusion, quite importantly, sets Jesus in world events by reminding us that his suffering was administrated by a man from a time and a place connected to our own world by the thread of history. Of course, we do not like this guy. Pilate was a Roman prefect, another name for the local governor, serving as the the dominating, merciless fist of the empire. It was the kingdom, ironically enough, proclaiming a gospel of peace built on blood and theft and conquest. They were experts at enslavement and cruelty and appropriation and humiliation, all conducted sometimes at the whims of absolute madmen and tyrants like Tiberius or Caligula or Nero. Tiberius was Pilate's boss. I mean, what's not to hate about Pilate and his garrison of soldiers? comes as second nature for us to hate people like him. The way we despise corrupt politicians who have a very slippery relationship with the truth, the way we hate dictators and oppressors, or anyone else who climbs a ladder of success on the backs and the necks of regular folks. The news we read every day names the crimes against humanity carried out by people like Pontius Pilate. What's not to hate about Pilate? Today's text continues the story of betrayal and sorrow. And the suffering under Pontius Pilate, well, that's just part of it. By this point in the gospel, Jesus has been rejected by his own people, He's been abandoned by his friends and his disciples. And he's been handed over to foreign occupiers by his pastors and his church leaders with violent purpose. 
These are but some of the varieties of Jesus' suffering. And here in John 18, Jesus stands before Rome's imperial judgment. So much of John's gospel plays out like the screenplay for a movie. In this scene especially, there's set one. It's outdoors. There's a dark courtyard with the first glimpses of morning light. And there's a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees still carrying torches and lanterns and weapons. And then there's set two. It's inside the Praetorium. It's a wing of Herod's beautiful palace. It's the interior of the governor's quarters. And there's flickering torchlight on stone columns, and there's rich fabric, and there's a table that's set for a beautiful breakfast. There's mosaics on the floor and frescoes on the walls, a space elegantly appointed with fine furnishings, quite like a fine hotel lobby, maybe. But before any of us get too comfortable, there is also a stately seriousness to this place. Maybe somewhere you can picture a placard or a sign with the empire's motto in Latin, Roma Invicta, unconquered Rome. Life and death is decided in this room. John's gospel camera carries us between these two spaces in seven scenes sketched out in John 18 and 19, and three of them are here in today's passage. There's two scenes outside with the religious authorities, and there's one with Pontius Pilate and Jesus Christ. As a side note, John 18 could offer us a time where we together stand for a little while with that angry religious mob out in the courtyard. We are a community of church folk, after all, and I would say that we might find some real close-to-home application as we stand with those people. But let's put a pin in that idea and mark it for another Sunday, because today we stand next to Pontius Pilate. Pilate didn't normally live in Jerusalem. He spent most of his days at a place called Caesarea Maritima. It was the provincial capital of Roman Judea, and it was a beautiful seaside town about 120 kilometers away from all that noise and hassle of Jerusalem. And I'm going to say that Pontius Pilate had a terrific wine cellar. But Pilate would make a point to flex his muscles in Jerusalem during Passover because Passover was a really dangerous time. The festival celebrating that time that the people remembered where they were miraculously rescued from the grip of a great empire many, many years ago, and so it only made sense that Roman military forces would make their presence known for the season just so the locals wouldn't get any revolutionary ideas. Pilate hasn't even had his morning coffee yet. And already there's a problem with these boisterous locals. And 
what, it's not a Passover riot? Refusing to enter the praetorium at risk of being defiled is a really strange way to be, considering that these folks are looking to have a man killed. But these local religious fanatics had a reputation for strictness and devotion to their laws, and there was no reasoning with them. Pilate would ask the crowd what charge they could bring against this man. And he couldn't get a straight answer. Why not judge him by your own laws? It seems a fair response. Good governance is sometimes about delegation, right? And why bring me into this? I'm already late for my morning pedicure. And manicure, I guess, too. But in the mind of the people, this man has committed a terrible capital offense, a horrible crime, and they wanted Rome's brutal justice. So John's gospel camera follows an irritated Pontius Pilate as he walks from the steps of the courtyard to the inner chambers of the praetorium. Pilate, I'm sure, had done his share of cross-examinations by now. Some of them he was probably pretty proud of, some of them maybe less so, but wow, he sure met his match with this one. This peasant, this tribal Judean from the forgettable town, what was it, Nazareth in Galilee, is a holy man, a teacher, He's been named a heretic and a dangerous, subversive character. And yet Pilate would find that this man was quite remarkable. Some sort of genius or sage. And this Jesus carried with him an authority and a poise that you wouldn't normally associate with a political prisoner bound in chains, standing trial for his life. This man didn't beg, he didn't plead, didn't throw himself on the ground. Pilate's conversation with Jesus is similar thematically in a lot of ways with a lot of the other exchanges that Jesus has with people like Nicodemus or the Samaritan woman at the well or Nathaniel or Peter. Another time where Jesus speaks with Difficult and confusing analogies and statements about himself and a profound sort of knowledge and confidence and deep wisdom. Met with puzzlement. Questions from astonished humans. Pilate asks if Jesus is king of the Jews. He says, your own people have handed you over to me. What? What have you done anyways? I don't get it. But Jesus replies with strange pronouncements about how his kingdom is not of this world. You say, I am a king. I was born for this. And for this, I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone partaking in the truth listens to my voice. 
Well, there's an idea, truth. It's a universal idea, a big idea. Every religion and philosophy and scientific theory claims to seek the truth. That's the elemental stuff. Maybe we have something to work with. And Pilate closes the conversation with his famous question, one of the great questions. What is truth? And John's gospel doesn't give us Jesus' answer, maybe because he didn't offer one. In that space, Pilate seems pretty well convinced that he is speaking to an innocent man, a strange and confusing one, and maybe even a really special person. So the camera carries us again back outside to the courtyard where Pilate proclaims Jesus' innocence. But the local fanatics, they won't even consider Jesus for the get-out-of-jail-free card that Pilate tries to give them, and instead they choose an absolute lunatic, a violent criminal named Barabbas? They really want that creep on the streets again? What can anyone do with a crowd like this? The man got it wrong. Let's be clear. Over time, Pilate would have plenty of blood on his hands as governor of Judea. But it's not an entirely simple matter, is it? Our reading of this text hinges so much on the posture and tone of voice that we assign to Pilate in the reading. Is he entirely scornful and cynical? Is he distracted? Was he sincere? If we were to offer Pilate some benefit of the doubt, would we say he was managing the best he could with a difficult situation, even if he got it wrong? Sacrifice one innocent man. Avoid a riot. And also avoid the bloodbath that would happen when he called his soldiers in to restore the peace. Heavy is the head that wears the crown, they say, right? Over the centuries, depending on the theological or political or cultural point you were trying to make, people have had varied opinions about Pilate. We should bear in mind, though, that we are in John's gospel today. And as far as the gospel frames things, Pontius Pilate stands in for the whole world. The whole world that's at odds with our creator. The complicated, messy, busy, difficult, anxious, self-destructive world. The world that needs saving. A world teeming with growth and enterprise and civilization and commerce and roads and laws and families and life and death and taxes. Our world the implicated, stained by generations of sorrow and negotiations and decisions and consequences world. Last week we stood for a while with Peter in the shame of his denial. Today we stand with Pilate and a thousand little denials and compromises, and excuses, and lies, and collaborations that make up life under the sun. Life under the sun for our 
complicated race. Pilate is boredom. He's the banality of evil. The same evil that says that one death is a tragedy, but a million people dead is a statistic. Pilate is comfort and security and holidays and hard work with the expectation of a promotion that never comes. Sometimes Pilate is sincere questions. The questions we ask when we're alone in the dark. Pilate is doubt. Pilate is despair. And with Pilate, we ask, what is truth? Get all of the things, check off all of the boxes, the prime location, the power and the pleasure, and whatever else the world offers, and find that yet the troubles of this life are still with us, so still, so near to us, a part of us. Pilate is the wave of empire and progress that we still ride today. Updated with a new name and fresh uniforms every now and then. Pilate is part of the complicated economies which privilege the very few and turn a blind eye to the suffering of so many invisible workers around the globe. Pilate is our world, the one we live in, and the one that we make. Pilate us? Can we see ourselves in that confused bureaucrat? What a gift then. That the gospel part of John's gospel makes the world its target audience. It's like the whole project is about salvation of the world. Friends, we've all been found wanting. We were the ones on trial the whole time. The angry angry religious folks outside, the disciples hiding in the shadows, and even that compromised Roman asset in the seats of power, everyone else in between. That famous Passover festival wasn't just the celebration of that time when God saved a nation. It turned out to be the start of a whole new thing. A a project embracing the whole of a troubled humanity. Carried out by the one who came into this world to testify to the truth. Jesus said to Pilate, to the world. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. So friends, listening people, us church people, wherever we find ourselves, may we have hearts and ears to listen to that voice. As we seek the truth, as we seek the truth with our lives, may we have courage to face that truth, even when it complicates and challenges and changes us.
because the one who calls us loves us and gave himself for us. Thanks be to God.